Hey everyone, this is Patrick Donahoe. Welcome to the Well Standard Podcast. This is episode number five, and my guest today is uh, Fraser Rice. Now, before I get to the interview, if you guys are new listeners, first off, thank you very much. Uh, would love for you guys to go back and check out the uh, the first four episodes of this season, uh, and also season two and season one of this year. You can binge watch those. We've we've been uh, we have the theme that comes from the philosopher John Locke. Uh, of life, liberty, and the pursuit of property and what that means and how it pertains to <clears throat> us today. And so we spent all uh, first four months of the year focused on that topic, uh, of the topic of life, which is you are your best asset. And then the second season was liberty, which is the pursuit of freedom, financial freedom specifically. Uh, and then we are now talking about property and how to take your mind, how to take the liberties that we have as individuals and figure out a way in, to put that into practice for the benefit of other people. And as we do that, we will receive the remuneration. Now, looking at my guest today, uh, this individual just uh, released the book Wealth Actually, and it talks about uh, some very similar financial principles. And uh, Fraser has been in the wealth management space and is uh, now departed there. And his work focused and specialized in uh, the family office space, which I think is a very interesting niche uh, because it really does cover from a, you know, the true family office standpoint, truly cover uh, most, if not all aspects of wealth, which are uh, personal and professional development, education. Uh, it's, uh, it's also uh, principles and values-based, mission-focused. Uh, so anyway, Fraser, is a great conversation, and uh, I'm excited for his uh, future now that he's exited uh, the, 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 the Wall Street world. Uh, and so let's uh, go ahead and get into, uh, get into that. But let me tell you, I have some pretty amazing guests coming on the line, so make sure that you uh, subscribe to the podcast. Also, go and uh, bookmark thewealthstandard.com, and all of Fraser's links are there uh, as well. Uh, and that's uh, that's it. So without uh, further delay, let's get to my interview with Fraser Rice. Welcome to the 2018 seasons of the Wealth Standard Podcast, celebrating the principles of life, liberty, and property. You are listening to season three, property. Fraser, it's awesome, uh, awesome to have you on. Welcome, uh, welcome to the show, Patrick. Thanks for having me on. So let's uh, let's do this. Your your book just barely barely came out, and uh, you know it was. It sounds like it, it took you a little bit of time uh, to to write it. Uh, so let's just go go to your background briefly, so that the audience can uh, get to know you, uh, and uh, and then we'll go from there. Terrific. Uh, I guess I'm a serial career switcher in many ways. I I left college and I worked in politics up in Albany for a few years. Uh, I didn't want to be a civil servant my whole life, so I did what most people end up doing in that world, and I went to law school. Uh, I had a bunch of really good experiences there, including working for an entertainment lawyer and a variety of federal agencies and Congress and the SEC and the Fed, and I uh, sort of circled around banking law. Uh, I got to the third year in law school. I was down in Atlanta, and that uh, that year, I said, you know, I like banking law, I like Atlanta, and uh, sort of cutting edge law, which is interesting. And I said, if this is as good as practicing law gets, it's not good enough for me. Uh, mm -hmm. <laughs> so unfortunately, or actually fortunately, um, I sort of decided then uh, I'm going to sort of push through. I passed the bar in New York. 
uh, practiced for a couple of years up in New York City, and then uh, I ended up going into private banking. I met a fellow by the name of Tony Guernsey, who had started up Wilmington Trust's New York office off of his Rolodex, and he liked the idea of lawyers as issue spotters. And I came with also equipped with the notion that I hadn't been practicing law so long that my answer to everything was no or it depends. So <laughs> uh, I was able to start my private banking career there. I uh, worked for a managing director for about five years. Uh, she moved on on and the book of business stayed with me. And then I was on my own. So uh, in a broader sense, I take care of the ones I have, or I took care of the ones I have, and I went out and found new ones. Uh, So I had a bit of a hybrid role on that front. So fast forward till now, that was almost 16 years uh, with the same firm, Wilmington Trust. And uh, I kind of came to the point where I had some entrepreneurial bubblings uh, and uh, about beginning of 2017, I started putting together some thoughts on what, on what I thought was uh, a good way for wealthy people and beyond uh, to think about their wealth. And I started writing them down and uh, started writing it down in earnest in 2017 and putting to bit, together a bit of a process with uh, the folks at Scribe Media. And uh, by the end of 2017, I uh, had a book ready to go, which was a personal Everest that I wanted to climb and I did it. And uh, I continued to work at Wilmington and for the next six to seven months and did continue to do well there. And I was ready to publish it and start doing some other things and uh, sort of went off on my own. So here we are. So what, what would you say are some maybe isolated events kind of leading up to, to this 2017 uh, pivot uh, and pursuing more entrepreneurial uh, ventures? Were there particular events or was just, was it a culmination of things? A culmination of a lot of things. I think the industry in general, I, I had trouble reconciling where the industry of wealth management was going. Fee compression is obviously a major uh, component of it. Uh, the allocation of resources uh, as it relates to servicing clients, as it relates to uh, rationalizing the pie chart of time that someone like me deals with. Uh, and I looked at that and said, you know, there, there are just a lot of issues. You've got the fidelities and vanguards of the world that are putting huge pressure on on what people can charge so therefore the money is sort of draining out of the uh, out of the industry in a very slow way uh, at the same time uh, the issues become more and more complex the machinery around uh, advising and servicing clients becomes more and more complex and rigorous and I just came to the point where I said you know uh, I, I was sort of useful and helpful in the relationship management world and in the business development world. And I thought, you know what, I'd like to take some time to just sort of synthesize my thoughts as to what I think good advice looks like. And then uh, sort of take a look at where we are from there. So, and, and correct me if I'm wrong, but you were in the, you were in kind of more of the, the upper, upper range of, of, of clients. You know, it sounds like you've worked with some family offices uh, and obviously you're, you're in, uh, in New York so even, you know, with what you were saying with the fidelities and the vanguards, uh, so is there compression there? Because uh, uh, obviously in the middle market, you know, there, I would assume there's a lot of compression, right? Because, you know, those, those uh, fees make a difference and the ease of, ease of investing, you know, especially for that, you know, normal range person, you know, is uh, having a robo-advisor, having easy choices, you know, makes, makes sense uh, to them. But even in the upper echelon, that you, you still experience that? 
I think it's even more relentless in the upper wow. echelon. I think that the uh, I think that the it, there is a huge education that's happened over the last ten to twenty years where uh, people understand that fees are a major drag on investment performance and and the ultimate dollars that you take home. So at the upper echelon, where people are really well advised and people are aware of that, uh, people are asking tough questions as to what's being uh, provided and what's not. And mm-hmm. inevitably, I think that the, the, the value that's provided on an after-tax basis, people are starting to really focus on that. And I think a lot of the financial services institutions are geared toward providing value at the investment product level. Uh, and as the active versus passive uh, debate has raged on as to whether people are outperforming indexes and justifying their fees, and the shift in value or the microscope on value has shifted more toward the tax equivalent side of things. Mm-hmm. I think you're getting into a world where the, the complex machinery around client service and advice is starting to get toward that world. Wow. Uh, at the upper end, that advice is expensive uh, and not necessarily provided by the financial institution. Interesting. So what would you, you know, what would you say is, you know, some of those, some of those focuses of your, of your book that bring out, you know, some of these, uh, some of these ideas and issues. And also, you know, I'm, I'm hoping you went into some of the unintended consequences of these shifts. Sure. Uh, so from a industry perspective, I'll start with that first. I think that the, uh, as, as the industry grapples with how to provide value that's understandable to the client, uh, you're seeing a real shift in uh, geared toward transparency. And so I think that uh, what I try to talk about, at least partially in the book, uh, in dealing with uh, people who are uh, sort of understanding what their investments are, uh, one of the prisms that I use is the idea of uh, an investment's characteristics as it relates to liquidity, transparency, and yield. Uh, And so on the liquidity side of things, uh, depending on how one's investment policy is set up, I think it's useful to know whether uh, an investment is indeed liquid and you have ready access to the value of that investment in one form or another. So if you're in private equity, that's not very liquid. You're probably locked in for a long period of time. It could be growing and doing something very, very nice for you. But at the same time, if you have short-term nice. cash flow needs, uh, you, could, you could be over a barrel. Uh, mm-hmm. On the uh, yield side of things, uh, for many people who are graduating from a world where they have a lot of current income, either generated by their business or by their job, when they go on to the next step in retirement and beyond, uh, the assets that they've built up have to generate some sort of yield uh, in order for them to meet their cash flow needs. And so that's another part of the prism that I have in the book where, you know, as you're analyzing the investments that make up your investment policy statement, that's something to look at. From a transparency standpoint, I think uh, the days of Madoff and beyond have taught people that uh, you can't necessarily believe everything you see as it relates to investments. And uh, and I, I put a huge premium on that. And transparency is not only going into the I's and T's of a contract and understanding what an annuity pays and whether you can get out of it or that type of thing, but it's also understanding what the investment does and, and why you're in it. Uh, and I think that's a big component of uh, where an advisor can add a lot of value and justify the account level fee that you pay is helping, helping you, the client, understand what your investments are doing in your portfolio why they're there, how they function, and are they 
performing what they need to do in order for you to effectuate your goals and to uh, take care of your various financial needs, both now, uh, both at the current level, and then for those people who have the wealth to go on to the next generation, are they fitting the bill as it relates to growing for the next generation? So one of the things, I mean, I, I, pick, I picked this up in your, in your book, is that through, you know, through this prism, you, you're, you're essentially looking at you know, liquidity, transparency, and yield uh, through the eyes of what, what outcome you're, you're seeking. Can you speak to that briefly? Sure. So I, I think the idea is the liquidity transparency yield analysis is probably, we put the cart before the horse a little bit there. I think ultimately good financial planning, good wealth management takes place when the client has uh, has gone through an analysis of what their goals and needs are. And then they established guardrails and investment guardrails around that. Uh, done well, I think that's codified in an investment policy statement. That way, the client is not surprised when the market is volatile, things don't do what they're supposed to do, or maybe they do things that they're supposed to do 10 times better than you expected. <laughs> And then uh, you're able to have a set of communication standards by which uh, you periodically check in to make sure that the course you've charted is the one that you're currently on. And ultimately, uh, as you implement the investment policy statement, either through stocks, bonds, private equity, you know, a whole host of other things you can be doing on that front, uh, as long as everything is sort of moving in lockstep with what you've planned for and the expected returns of the various asset classes that you've been allocated into uh, are in place, I, there are fewer areas for surprise. And, and if you, you know, I guess we're at all-time highs now in the stock market, uh, many people end up feeling very good. Uh, but at the same time, uh, this to me is a good time for many folks to go back and revisit where they are and where they want to be and to make sure that their investments are aligned accordingly uh, so that you know, you're, not, you're not over-concentrated in areas and have a nasty surprise if the market goes sideways on you. And, this, and, and I would say, you know, ba based on your response right now, I would assume there's, there's some conflict with the idea that there, you know, people that are investing are trying to reduce the amount of fees because of the drag it has on the overall, uh, you know, balance down the road. But at the same time, as far as individualized advice, I would assume that, you know, these questions and conversations as far as the uh, the, the prism that you're making decisions through would require, you know, a, an individual or are there some modern tools that you're seeing come on the marketplace that are able to, you know, play that role as well? Well, I, I go back and say, look, I, I, well, I, while fees are something you want to keep to a minimum and they, they're a drag and so on, uh, I think good advice is worth paying for. Mm -hmm. So your advisors, your lawyers, your accountants, uh, your financial advisors, investment bankers, what have you, uh, good advice, especially on an after-tax basis, can provide a lot of savings, both from a tax perspective and from uh, from an investment perspective. Mm -hmm. uh, a second set of eyes on your investment portfolio uh, is is good. I, I think that it's not a bad thing to have someone look at you and say, geez, you know, you might be over-concentrated here. Did you think about this? Uh, this fits within your investment policy statement, but, uh, you know, is there something else we could be thinking about there? Uh, so I, I guess I would, I would start with saying that uh, good advice Advice is worth spending money on. Mm. Are there tools out there? Absolutely. I mean, if you just go on the just Google various things as far as uh, retirement planners and so on to make sure that you're on course, uh, that's at a minimum where you know you can start and say, "This is where my 
asset level is, this is the expected return I expect and how much I think I'm able to save. Is this going to support the level of spending that I think I'm going to need going into retirement? Absolutely. Mm-hmm. Uh, the, the, and I would caution that uh, that it is worth talking to an advisor on that front. I think those are tools, much like if you were to go and, and build your own shed or something like that, you could probably get something up that kind of uh, is upright and and uh, looks like a shed and, seem, and performs the function pretty well, but may be rickety if the storm comes. Uh, and so I, I would say that the tools are out there. I think they're good for building some personal context. I think they're really good uh, in terms of helping people uh, educate the family uh, where they are in terms of a financial condition and helping to chart it out and deliver some data in a not very threatening way. Um, but I'd also say that, that an advisor's hand, someone who does it professionally, more importantly, someone who is around the markets a lot and consistently uh, can help draw even further context than, than what the numbers from some of those tools uh, can provide. Yeah. Well, let, let me, let's shift gears because, yeah, th- there were some you know, points in the book that you really tried to, to get across and, a lot, and uh, it related more to you know, inter-family communication and probably to set the stage for that uh, would you you know mind discussing the 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 transfer of assets that's going to be occurring over the next you know 20 20 30 30 years from the generation that is now you know in their 60s and 70s uh, to the the next generations I would say the you know uh, generation X and y and and, uh, and and millennials, yeah, millennials, post millennials, uh, Generation Q, whatever letters they come up with, it's tough to tough to keep track of the labels. Uh, yeah, absolutely. I I think the first thing I would hearken on is that uh, for anybody who builds any level of assets, you don't have to necessarily be in the one percent that uh, that there are threats to wealth, and the ones that are typically thought of are taxes, bad investments. Uh, market conditions, bad policy, that type of thing. Uh, I would argue that one of the major threats to wealth, especially from a transfer going forward, uh, is is bad family communication or dysfunctional family communication. Statistically speaking, I, the numbers the numbers are all over the place, but let's pick a nice big round one. Uh, one trillion dollars is supposed to go from the sort of uh, uh, golden year generation to the next generation within the next 20 to 25 years. And uh, the meaningful fractions of that $1 trillion affect a lot of different people. Uh, the thing that I see most often in uh, transfers where, uh, where those threats come to the fore are when the next generation and beyond are not on board or don't have the context to uh, understand uh, what the what the money and what the function of that money is supposed to be, uh, one of the old saws in our industry is that it's very easy to get the money ready for the family. Lots of estate planning attorneys and accountants and lawyers and etc. can put together all sorts of strategies and structures and things like that to make that happen. Uh, the tougher problem is getting the family for the ready for the money, and ultimately, I think one of the things that helps to do that is to and to help effectuate what is usually a goal for many wealthy people and beyond, which is the transfer of 
values to the next generation, uh, not just the money, uh, is the idea of a lot of shared activity and communication as early as possible, both around the wealth and the source of the wealth, uh, but also the things that make a family unique, the values, the different types of concepts that, that hopefully bind the family together beyond just uh, uh, you know, DNA. Um, and uh, to me, that's really one of the first components, and I try to talk about that in the book, that uh, there are a lot of different exercises you can do to help get that started. Uh, among them, uh, I think the idea of getting everybody as best as possible, uh, understanding each other's strengths and weaknesses, and again, to the extent possible, uh, uh, having some sort of baseline of financial literacy uh, so that when the conversations around money start to happen, you have everybody at least having a, a, the same level of context around why decisions are made around structuring and not just, uh, you know, this is something that mom and dad put into place and this is how it's going to be. And, uh, you know, one brother has some perceived slight from a sister from long time ago. And then all of a sudden, uh, if people are treated, uh, the difference between being treated equally and equitably comes into the fore, those types of issues pop up. Well, where do you, where do you, what initiates that? Is that, is that initiated by, you know, the, the actual, you know, family patriarch, or, or is that something that can be initiated by, uh, by, by the kids? Cause I would say, you know, just in, in my experience, the old, you have older individuals who are, who are stuck in their ways and, you know, one thing's done a, spe a specific way, right? But then you have younger kids that realize that, you know, there, there may be some affairs that they, you know, have to handle later in their, their parents' life when they're not, you know, uh, mentally uh, capable of, of making certain decisions. Like, where, do, where, does, where does that start? Like, as you've, have used, as you've helped family offices, as you've helped other, you know, uh, higher echelon families, like, where, where, do you, where do you start? So, every family's a snowflake, uh, and by that I mean every one of them is different. I don't think there's any one particular answer to that. Uh, my, my gut instinct is to say I would get started as early as possible. And you can get started early without necessarily pulling the covers off the bed uh, on everything so that you're not telling your six-year-old that you're worth $400 million and, and you run the risk of creating trust fund kids and, and sapping away initiative, which is a major concern for most people. However, there are little exercises that you can do uh, that help get people started on that. Um, one of which, uh, and I, I think this is particularly useful early, is the idea of putting together a pool of money. It can be $1,000 or $500 or it can be 10000 or 50000 or whatever number you want to put on it for a family vacation and uh, having the kids responsible for investing it. And you create all sorts of backdoor ways of learning on that front. First and oh, foremost, yeah. uh, the, kids, the kids learn investing tools. If you take too much risk and it goes to zero, guess what? We're not going on vacation. If you take risk and it does great, terrific. Uh, and then you know, once they learn that and then they understand the idea of maybe taking a little bit of risk, but then maybe siphoning some stuff away so that you have some family vacation, uh, you get to learn a little bit not only about investing, 
but most importantly, you learn about, let's say you had three kids who had to make those. The kids get to understand how they make decisions together. And that's a key interesting point. And then the third part that's nice is that it teaches accountability. Uh, and so the decisions that are made by the kids that have an impact not only on the kids but on the parents as well, the, it, it's, it's not all done in a bubble. But at the same time, you're not, you're not taking your first swipe at group financial decision-making in the disposition of the family business or when the will's being executed when the patriarchs are dead and you've got major assets at stake. So that's one basic area with, that I think is interesting. Uh, a second tool that I think is pretty cool is the idea of shared philanthropy. So if you had $4 to give away and you have three kids, uh, the idea of it is essentially you give each kid a dollar to give away and they give it away however they want to do it. Uh, everyone learns what's important to the kids. And so there's some good data points there to sort of see what people do on that front. Uh, the next part, the fourth dollar is a group decision-making process. So you get to see how the kids work together. You get to see how the, what the kids think is important. You get to see who is stubborn on one thing and who gives on another or what is important to everybody. Uh, and so those two exercises, which can be done really early, uh, I, I think are, I, mean, I think those are two kind of interesting backdoor ways to get the conversation started about wealth uh, before you have to start going into the real nitty gritty of, okay, here's why we're setting up wills and trusts. Here's what, here's where the money came from. Here's, uh, the, you know, it, 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 one of the problems I think is that as a society, we're becoming more and more enumerate. And, and by that, I mean, it's tough to put scale around the large numbers that we see. Yeah. Uh, to begin to see that more and more, uh, to try to get that in place ahead of uh, the larger discussions around wealth, I think, is is a good exercise. Yeah, it's so it's in, that's an interesting approach because you kind of create your your own little control group, right? Before you actually start to put something in uh, you know in stone and on on paper. Uh, so maybe so maybe talk to talk to the audience and and me. I'm curious too as to you know maybe some of the exercises that you've seen that are effective in extracting you know, the, the values and, you know, the, the drive behind what created that wealth in the first, pra uh, first place uh, of those that are going to actually be transferring, transferring those assets. Sure. I, I, I think, you know, especially for the people, you know, the ultra high net worth types of people, uh, I think they start to treat it like a business in the sense that they, you know, the idea of having a mission statement and a family constitution and things like that are, are useful tools. Uh, I've seen it very frequently where the family members and beneficiaries, uh, they take personality tests uh, so that people understand who they're dealing with. There are all sorts of aha moments when people say, geez, you know, I did, I, I may have intuited this, but uh, a lot of the things that made me great may be pushing away the family members or by the same token, you know, one family member's way of communicating is completely different from the way another family member's way of communicating happens. And if there's understanding of those traits ahead of major decisions, you know, you may not solve the different conflicts that are out there, but you at least build in a little bit more context for how decisions should happen. Um, I think that's, uh, that's one area. But, you know, I think the idea of, you know, is with many things where you try to codify uh, what makes something good or great and what you 
want to perpetuate, the first step is writing it down. The first step is understanding what's important. Uh, and uh, I think buy-in happens many times when uh, instead of having it mandated from the top, uh, collecting data from everybody individually, uh, I think, uh, is not only educational for uh, the next generation and beyond as to what you know they think that the upper level thinks is important, but I think the upper level learns that uh, that the next generation has their own ideas on certain things and that maybe they should be incorporated uh, in sort of a a family constitution or a you know let's call it a living uh, document where you know these are the things that are important to the family these are the things that we want to push forward going forward and that we think are important for the next generations and things like philanthropy and entrepreneurial spirit and self-reliance and uh, you know getting away from being a trust fund kid and maybe staying away from gambling or drugs or other bad habits that type <laughs> of thing um, those are all things that that are good to write down and then you know there are facilitators that help with that um, at certainly at the upper levels, they're, they they cost money. Uh, but those are the types of concepts that even for people who aren't in the one percent, it's worth an exercise in writing those down. Especially, uh, for, you know, it's standard operating procedure to have a, a will and a healthcare proxy and uh, probably a revocable trust at this point uh, for uh, most families, and to have some of those uh, those ideas in mind before you go to the estate planning attorney or or other advisor. Uh, it helps them create a little bit better uh, document for you and one that helps effectuate what you want to have happen beyond just X dollars go to Y person. Z person yeah. Right. No, I, th- so there was, um, you know, I, I've worked on my, you know, my estate planning for in, every year we, we try to at least review and, and uh, you know, figure out, just how how you know how to pass on more than just monetary monetary value. But I remember this is this was about three years ago. We were coming, uh, so I live in Salt Salt Lake, but my parents live on on Cape Cod. So we were we were flying uh, from Boston to uh, to Salt Lake, and our plane hit a, a huge hailstorm. And my you know my three kids were there, my wife was there, and it, you know the the plane didn't have the greatest radar, so it relied on air traffic control. Anyway, hit a hit a hit a hailstorm. And, you know, it was so severe that we thought like we were, we thought that was, you know, we were done. And that, you know, internally it caused me to reevaluate, uh, you know, a, a lot of things as far as, because I did it before as, as not necessarily boilerplate, but I, I did it before, you know, thinking that, you know, things were just going to go on and I would have, I would have time. Uh, but this created some urgency, right? And so, uh, and also I had set up my, my, my uh, planning so that if something happened to me and, and, and my wife, that the kids were taken care of. But this was like all of us going down together. And so I didn't necessarily account for, uh, for that. So the planning would have been done a little bit differently. But it's one of those things where those, those events and also, you know, some, some families uh, close to me, I, I've seen just, you know, these just freak things happen where, you know, life was taken, taken from them, uh, you know, with, with, you know, an, an accident, uh, just pure, pure accident. And so the urgency, you know, even at younger, younger ages, uh, I think is vital. And I know that there are, are tools out there, uh, books, education that can guide you along, uh, along that path. I mean, aside from your uh, book, uh, what are some of the, the tools that you have seen as, as effective, whether it's a, an app or whether it's a, a course or, or maybe another book? 
Sure. So uh, let me start off by saying from a, just a general review policy for estate plans. Uh, I tend to advise clients and say, you know, I just did my estate plan. You know, why do I need to keep reviewing them? What's a good time frame for doing them? Uh, I would say at a minimum, at an absolute minimum, every five years. Uh, the I tend to think that estate plans should be reviewed upon major life events, births, marriages, deaths, divorces, sale of business, potential sale of business, uh, those types of things. Uh, add on to that any changes in tax law that you can diagnose in the news. I think anything like that uh, is something that merits going to a uh, estate planning attorney or any other attorney for that matter, but an estate planning attorney in particular for estate plans and saying, you know, is there anything that I need to, you know, either fix or take advantage of? I would also be mindful of uh, not just the federal implications, but the state implications of estate taxes. I, I live in New York, and so uh, really high, yeah. something called the cliff, where after a certain monetary level, uh, if you die, you end up essentially throwing away hundreds of thousands of dollars in state tax if you don't set your planning up correctly. You know, it's a distortion of the system and I can't believe it's actually intentional uh, or it was intentionally drafted, but it's something that you have to be mindful of at the upper levels of wealth uh, to make sure that you're, you're on top of it. So it, and sort of a byline there, but that, that's sort of, I think, good, uh, a good uh, sort of procedure as it relates to your estate planning. Uh, you know, if you're looking at it once a year, you're very much on top of it. That's good. Uh, as far as books go, I think uh, Jay Hughes is a popular writer uh, as it relates to family governance, family yeah. issues. He's written a variety of books uh, on it. And I think, uh, you know, he, he speaks lots of truths and it's something that gives you a lot of uh, philosophy and, and, and it's sort of thought provoking concepts as it relates to thinking about your own uh, family. Uh, and it's not, it's not relegated to the upper 1%. Hopefully I, my book, unfortunately is probably uh, unfortunately titled as intelligent decision-making for the 1%. But I think there are some concepts that, that lots of people can use. Uh, Jay Hughes is the same way. And I think he's someone that, uh, you know, if you're on Amazon and taking a look at things, he's, uh, He's an interesting person on that front. I'd also add, uh, I'd add Josh Brown, uh, who wrote uh, Backstage Wall Street. I think he's got an, that's an interesting look at how uh, the business of uh, uh, brokerages works. Um, I think it's, it's a uh, very sort of funny anecdotal uh, quasi tell all, uh, but without much venom to it, but it helps uh, it, the, the, some portion of it is that it underscores the idea that it's a good idea for your uh, financial advisor to have a fiduciary approach and to, and, to, and to be as unconflicted as possible in an industry where it's tough to maintain that. Now you said, you said something that, I, that maybe we can, we can uh, start to wrap things up with, which I think is, 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 is often overlooked because often people look at, you know, the, the top 1% or they look at, you know, those that are, you know, from a financial standpoint, well beyond them. At the same time, you know, there are, are so many clues there as it relates to, to everyone, uh, whether it's organization, uh, whether it's, you know, the, the establishing of relationships, whether uh, it's uh, in investing techniques, uh, it's 
I mean, there, there's so many different elements to it. And you had meant, we had mentioned, you know, mission and vision and, and values and family constitution. I mean, these are all, these are all things that you can read a lot about. Uh, and at whatever level, it can have a difference on, you know, your, your kids, your future, your future kid, uh, your, your grandkids, and, and those that will, will be here, you know, beyond your, your lifetime. And, and I often, you know, I had a conversation with my mom. My mom's like a genealogy you know, fanatic. And if I even like hint at something, it's like five hour conversation about it. <laughs> and, but I realized this past summer when we were, when we were out visiting that we do, you know, a visit we make every, every summer, you know, there, there became this, this uh, enhanced curiosity or magnified curiosity of, you know, the, the, what my grandfather did for a living, what my great grandfather did and how, you know, where they came from. And, 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 I sometimes think that we we live so much in you know the past and in the future that we don't put any regard to the present and the legacy that we're we're establishing today, and you know whether it's family family meetings or whether it's the, the current family communication we have even with little little kids, you know I think we're always uh, making a legacy right, and it's not something that you you know, write down on a piece of paper at some future date and put in a, you know, and, and put in a binder, right? It, it's something that can be, you know, established today. And, th- and there are so many clues associated with success that's out there, you know, that's available to anyone because of how amazing communication and access to information is these days. So would you, would you maybe, you know, speak to that and, uh, you know, talk through, you know, maybe an example or two of how, uh, you know, families successfully, transferred their knowledge and wisdom to a next generation. And then maybe for you, if you wouldn't you know, mind uh, giving us some insight into some of those you know, icons or archetypes that inspired or influenced you to do what you're doing today. Sure. So I, I think that the, the, the arc of, of, art, of articulating how someone makes a dent in, in life is the art of storytelling. And I think one of the great ways that you can transmit values without being preachy and say, you know, thou shalt do this and that is collecting the stories of, of the family. Uh, and so it's less a flow chart and more a collection of uh, stories about how uh, one, one person got to where they are. A friend of mine named Bill Yo, uh, his family uh, sort of became a part of Day and Zimmerman, which is a very successful privately held uh, firm in Pennsylvania. Uh, he codified the story of his father and how he uh, how he took the company that his father helped to build and made it that much bigger. And he wrote a book about it and uh, the the story of Spike Yo and and that's one of the ways to do it. And and he went warts and all. I mean, he talked about the various issues that they faced and you know, their chemical problems or uh, you know the challenges of business succession and communication issues and things like that. But but the thing that I think was most important about it was that it was a uh, it was a story and it's something you can dive into and and uh, be entertained, be inspired by, but ultimately be educated by and to see how one group of people with their particular circumstance uh, got it 
to the next generation uh, as best they could. I think Bill would be the first one to say that it's far from perfect, but uh, it, I can tell I can tell you from my vantage point, they did a pretty darn good job, uh, and and there's no great roadmap for it. And so the best way to deal with things where there aren't roadmaps is to deal with the stories around the problems that you're facing and and the opportunities that have been seized. And so for families that are trying to do it, I would I would encourage them, and I've seen it, you know, in the Yo example amongst dozens of others is to codify the stories around, you know, how the wealth was created, where people came from, even before the wealth was created. It's, you know, how, uh, uh, you know, how did people come over to this country or, you know, are they even in this country at all? What, what, what is the past? Because uh, there are dozens of really interesting lessons that can happen on that front. Uh, as it relates to me personally, I think the, I tried to do that in writing my own book. Now, I didn't talk about my personal story in it very much, and uh, I, <laughs> I wouldn't classify myself as the ultra high net worth by any stretch. I'm probably a pretty insignificant fraction of that. But uh, the idea for me was beyond just being a cog in the financial services world, I wanted to make a bit more of a dent. Uh, and the way I felt like I could make a dent was by writing a book that I think would be useful, not just beyond my clients, but hopefully it would have a broader reach. And uh, in the uh, foreword of the book, I dedicated it to my niece, and uh, it's also dedicated to my nephew, although he wasn't born yet, so <laughs> he didn't get the benefit of that. But uh, 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 the idea was, you know, this is something that maybe for some people, uh, if they could look at it and uh, learn from my various experiences in the uh, investment world and the family wealth world and that type of thing, and to be able to get some sort of uh, lessons from it, uh, they might be able to avoid a lot of the mistakes that a lot of other families and individuals make. Um, and, uh, you know, for me, I do a lot of writing, I produce other media things. And uh, that it, it, for me, it's that that creative pilot light that's important to keep on, and to, to really try to help flourish. Um, and, you know, I would encourage other people as they try to transmit values uh, to the next generation. My, my big bland statement to that is, you know, in many cases, you want your kids to have the resources and initiative to make their own dent in the world. And, and hopefully that dent is productive. Uh, and, you know, for me doing this uh, from the book standpoint, from podcasts and other media things and, you know, keeping my toe in the water and the wealth side, this is my way of making a dent beyond my little orbit and, and hopefully trying to uh, have an impact beyond, you know, a, a couple dozen people. It's something where I try to uh, teach a little bit of, from my particular lessons. I guess the, I guess the, uh, I don't know who said it, but essentially, you know, when you read a book, you know, you're, you're able to take a someone else's lifetime of experience and incorporate it into your own in just a few short hours. Uh, that ultimately is, is what I tried to do here. Awesome. Thank you. Thank you for sharing that. Yeah. There, so there's, I'll, I'll end with, with two things that, that I've actually, you know, on this front uh, that I've started to talk about recently and actually, actually do uh, as it relates to, you know, older, older individuals and the relationship they have with their, with their kids. Uh, so I, I got this app called Memories. And this summer when I was out uh, with my, with my parents, uh, I started to record, there's like an audio feature of it where you can actually record them and it stores it within like a family tree and, and so forth. 
but I just, you know, asked questions about my dad's childhood and, you know, they, they grew up coming to uh, going to Cape Cod. So I asked about memories there and asked about memories, you know, going and visiting, you know, family in the, in the Bronx. We used to go when we were little kids to my great grandparents who lived in like the hood. And I, I have kind of these vague memories, but then he went into all these different examples. And so I think that there, there's technology these days that make it really easy right, to, to document and to, and to store uh, and, and curate, you know, information about, you know, about your parents. So it doesn't have to just go from the top down. You can go from the, from the bottom up. Uh, and then also, have you heard of the day one, the day one app? Before? I've heard of it. I haven't, I haven't experienced it yet though. It's really, it's awesome. And it, it, for me, I'm not like a big social media guy. My, you know, my wife does all that, all that stuff. Uh, and, but for me, it became, you know, part, it, you can rec- record audio and you can upload pictures and it track, it's kind of creepy, but it tracks you throughout the day and shows where you went and takes pictures from your social media. But it's a way in which, you know, you can start creating a, a, a legacy and you may not feel that it's you know, your, your uh, daily life is, uh, is, is that significant. But I would say from the curiosity of those that are down the line, it's, gonna, it's definitely going to be there. And I would say, especially as you are able to you know, create wealth and then tra- transfer that, because in the end, it's one of those things where you know, if, if, if there wasn't a carrot uh, there, there's still going to be some of your errors or, you know, your, your genealogy that would be able to, you know, take from your wisdom and, and improve their life. But I would say with the carrot, right, of being able to pass on financial resources, you know, marrying the two can, can transform a family in a good way, also a bad way, but, but in a good way, good way as well. So it sounds like a pretty neat tool. I, I, I like the idea that, uh, you know, you're collecting data in many ways and, uh, to the extent that, you know, you're able to weave a story around it. I think that helps to, you know, the, the, the wandering down to the market every day that may become a little bit dull, but if that, but if in the context of, you know, this is how we did things back then, you know, for people two or three generations from now, you know, if we're in flying cars or teleporting or, you know, the, otherwise <laughs> we singularity or something like that. And they say, geez, uh, you know, the context under which people had to live in order to create things or maintain them. Yeah. I think that's, that's important. And I think that's, that's the part that's the toughest to convey from previous generations. I mean, I, I talk about, you know, when I deal with, <laughs> I'm 45. So when the, uh, you know, younger folks say you went to college and you didn't have a cell phone. Like, nope, I didn't. We, we made plans. We had to stick with them. Or if we didn't, we had backup plans and we had to know people's names and remember license plates and things like that. And uh, very alien things to many people. And but, phone numbers. Uh, phone numbers, addresses. You had to figure out your way to, to get it. It's cra- it is. It's really crazy to think about that. But I would also, I'd also say that you, know, you never, even though the, the, there are moments that today may seem insignificant, you have no idea like, what that moment's going to create in the future right? Because it could be going to like the market, like, like you said, but you could have been in line and, you know, met somebody who ended up being a business partner, or ended up, you know, being a best friend or end up being a spouse, right? And so, it's one of those things where I think the tools that are available today can link all these things together, which I think would definitely appease the curiosity of, of, uh, of those down the line. So, I don't know, it's, it's just one of those, I and mean, it's another thing to do, but at the same time, I, I feel just in working with a, a lot of people and in, in, in my thoughts personally is that, you know, we, we have a desire to make a dent, to make a difference, to, to leave a legacy. And sometimes there's this one thing that we think is going to create the legacy, but oftentimes there's some, there's some things that you may think are, are insignificant that create it for you. 
Uh, and that's where, you know, today, like this app, it is, like I said, it's, it's creepy because it shows like where you went. It pulls pictures that you've taken off your phone. It shows the weather, the altitude, like it just, just everything that went on during, during that day all happens kind of behind the scenes and, and documents and organizes it for you. So it's pretty, pretty fascinating. So day one, yeah, cool. I, I don't get any, I don't get any, you know, any compensation for that. It's just a, it's just a really cool app. Neat. All right. Well, Fraser, let's, uh, let's, let's, let's wrap things up. Why don't you tell uh, the listeners that it sounds like you're working on some pretty cool things with, uh, uh, with the podcast. I know that you're active on social media. Why don't you let them know how they can uh, follow you, uh, get, get your book and, uh, and, and see what you're up to. Terrific. So uh, my book is on Amazon. You can get it on Kindle or paperback. It's called Wealth Actually. Uh, I have a website for it, wealthactually.com. Uh, I have a personal website, and that is FraserRice.com, F-R-A-Z-E-R-R-I-C-E. Uh, I am also on Twitter and Instagram and Facebook and LinkedIn and all those types of things. So if you Google Fraser Rice, uh, you'll have no trouble finding me. Okay, and we'll post all of that on the show notes. So if you guys want to head over to uh, the podcast website, you can uh, pull that all down from there. Fraser, it was uh, it's awesome to spend some time with you, and I uh, can't wait to keep learning from you. Likewise, Patrick. Good stuff. Okay, take care. Thank you for joining us as the Wealth Standard Podcast spends all of 2018 celebrating life, liberty, and property. Be sure to leave us a review on iTunes, and we'll see you on the next one.